0: gentle listener, and welcome to this special Scotch-free episode of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. Now that all of you have stopped listening, because what is the point of this podcast without Scotch in it, uh, I am Ethan Bartlett. I am Ethan Bartlett.
1: Michael. I, I'm Michael Illienthal.
0: Okay, well, we're... <laughs> We're going to have to edit that, because you definitely do a lot of editing work on this podcast, ever.
1: So much. Yeah. So much. It's like I like, heavily edited.
0: I like how the only thing you actually edit is Names with Michael.
1: <laughs> the important stuff.
0: Like, left in are multiple, like, us doing multiple takes, and me saying, like, can you edit that out so we don't sound like idiots, please? <laughs> but no, Names with Michael is this, like, super highly produced, like you you actually got a subscription to lynda.com to figure out how to how to do the things in names with michael but the yeah, rest yeah, of it is just true. us yelling into a microphone yeah oh, you're mm. right close that curtain get that light out of here cuz like i i can't work under these conditions Anyway.
1: No, I know, it needs to be just right. I, I'm trying to get all the lighting just right for this podcast episode. Yeah, and, um, that
0: definitely everyone will see and appreciate.
1: Like I said, I edit the important things.
0: Yeah, and and uh, all of our viewers love you for it. Um. <laughs> so, gentle listener, as you've no doubt guessed by now, this is a special episode in which we are <laughs> paying honor and reverence to... Uh, and, and this part is legitimately very sad for me, and I mask it by humor as a good white American male. Um, but we are, we are paying honor to, um, Gene Wolfe, who, uh, passed away recently, depending on when this episode comes out, which, like, Michael did just tell me when that would be, and I forgot. It will
1: be in probably don't say it wrong end of june end of june it'll be coming out
0: so three months ago by the time that you're playing back this podcast tape
1: (sighs) tape. (sighs) um
0: i was hoping to slip that (laughs) reference in by uh uh, trying to make you do math while i was saying it because you would you would want to be smart and do the math but didn't work i guess anyway
1: nope nope It's not going to get past me.
0: Uh, It's worth a shot.
1: See, that's another thing. I just object to it. I don't edit it out.
0: Right, right. That's true. Like that would be too much work. But like names, names with Michael, you hire like three outside vocal artists to (laughs) to come and record that intro. Um. (laughs) Oh. So, gentle listener, uh, Gene Wolfe passed away. If, um, if you weren't aware of it, you would be. You could mark it by it being the day before, I believe, Notre Dame started on fire. Um, Yeah. So.
1: Not Notre Dame. That's a college. You mean Notre Dame?
0: Thank you. Um, I'm American, so I just figured everyone would understand what I meant with my accent, but thank you for just, like, making me look like a rube.
1: See, I'm worried that you just freaked out a bunch of our listeners who are followers of Notre Dame football. Don't worry, the Fighting Irish are fine. Wow. Uh,
0: anyway, so a fellow science fiction writer named James Blaylock said, uh, "Gene Wolfe dies and Notre Dame burns. Surely it is the devil's own day," uh, mm-hmm. referencing the fact that both were monuments to Roman Catholic influence in in culture and art um but gene wolf Mm -hmm. has appeared on this show before we uh did two episodes on his book a borrowed man which at least as of right now is the latest or the the most recent novel that he published um Mm -hmm. i don't know if there's you know one more uh that was lined up when he passed or if that will prove to be his last novel um
1: in the hopper or anything yeah
0: uh so you know he's appeared on this show before to me personally he's like one of my biggest influences of all time I've read every single one of his novels almost all of his published short story collections um you know he formed me as a writer and as a reader and just like as a person weirdly so like I don't usually get upset about like celebrity deaths or famous people deaths um Mm -hmm, too mm -hmm. much but like Gene Wolf, like that, hurt uh, to find out that he had passed, even though he was, you know, eighty-nine years old. But like, still, like, I don't right. know, uh,
1: like it was, it was coming, obviously, but I'll, that doesn't lessen the impact. yeah. In
0: the same way that like a grandparent passing would, yeah. So yeah, um, so we just wanted to do this special uh, in honor of him and just as an opportunity, a timely. Somewhat timely one, even though we have apparently like a three-month backlog or whatever um, of right. just right. honoring his legacy and taking a look at another of his pieces of fiction. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that said, uh, this episode we are reading a, a story from the Gene Wolf collection, The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. Mm -hmm. but somewhat confusingly the story we are reading is called the death of dr island (laughs) more on that in a minute but i do want to give the gentle listener a moment to go read this story um and if you have to pick up the entire collection like it is well worth it um -hmm. Mm -hmm. not only obviously do i blanket recommend gene wolf but like this is one of his finest collections of stories with some of his finest stories in it um so it's it's worth picking up just just for its own sake. Um so go read that. And wasn't it great?
1: Yep. What more can you say?
0: (laughs) Michael and I reread it in that pause we just did. Um
1: which is pretty fast
0: on our parts. Um you gotta you gotta admit. Uh
1: like, yeah. Pretty much. I, I, I think the the best reply we can give to this story is the last line of this story
0: oh man now i have to flip for all the way all the way to the end of the story wow i'm so mad at you
1: i know i know you are
0: also yes (laughs) uh do we need to have karen read the rules
1: like historically we haven't really had rules on these i genuinely couldn't remember if she wants to she can
0: nah she's lying on the couch eating truffles so she's good
1: all right all right you treat your wife right yeah i
0: was gonna say i'm leaving it open to interpretation whether that's actually what she's doing at this very moment or not but uh (laughs) yeah we'll we'll not have that i couldn't remember michael lost the script before we started this episode so i'm just flailing wildly and by lost the script i do mean he like accidentally burned it um lighting his cigarette that he always smokes at the beginning of these episodes.
1: Yep, that's what I do all the time.
0: So, Michael, do we need to do yep. anything else, or should we just uh, get started here?
1: Should we share what we're drinking, Yeah,
0: like? we should say that. Thank you. I looked at my drink and then was like, oh, yeah, we should do that, please. What are you drinking, Michael?
1: <laughs> uh, I am drinking a vodka tonic with a splash of orange bitters. Ooh. It's quite good, um that uh, the 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 orange really kind of gives a nice little twist to it and that extra citrusy burst that you always want especially on a nice warm late spring day in southern minnesota
0: like i don't always i, I don't usually trust vodka um but uh, uh-huh. it, it, like that sounds perfect for exactly the type of weather we're having like here well, in the upper well, midwest at this time well,
1: y- Here's the thing, this this vodka also is Grey Duck Vodka, which is a Minnesota brand of vodka. Yeah,
0: because it's named after the way that Minnesota says Duck Duck Goose
1: wrong. Is the right way to play the game Duck because Duck. Because the right way would gray be duck, duck.
0: the one that a very small circumscribed population says it, as opposed to the way that literally everyone else says it.
1: Like... Are you just quashing minorities here, Ethan? Is that what you're saying?
0: Wow, I I really don't care about this debate. I just wanted to see what you would give me in reply to what I just said, and that was very good. Like I'm tempted to seed seed it to you, except that I don't want to. And this is not the Duck Duck Gray Duck Goose podcast, so. Uh...
1: No, no, we'll save that for another podcast. But <laughs> my, no, my, my replies were, I had a bunch of different options going through my head, and I thought, you know what, I'll take the lowest one. Yeah, row. just
0: just reach up and <laughs> pluck the nearest lowest hanging possible fruit there, huh? Yep. Okay. <laughs> well, good. Um. So, gentle listener, we, uh, we...
1: What are you drinking?
0: Oh, yeah, I didn't even say it, did I? Um... So I'm do. drinking a drink ca- that is apparently called the Mara Amu, uh, which I got out of a collection of tiki drinks um, that I acquired re- recently called Intoxica, uh, which is written by a man named Jeff Barry who took it upon himself to sort of unearth vintage tiki drink recipes and sort of bring back tiki drinks from the, like... Uh, artificial sour underworld from which to which they had descended um and look up some of the original recipes from the 30s and 40s this one apparently comes more from the 70s but it's uh, a recipe originally from the uh My kai restaurant in fort lauderdale florida uh which was is apparently one of the few restaurants that sort of held on to its its good fresh ingredient tiki tradition so this uh this drink has several um fruit juices to it there's lime juice there's grapefruit juice there's orange juice it has three different types of rum a light one a gold one and a dark one um in case you're wondering where all of my uh, splurge money has gone the last few months it also has passion fruit syrup in it which is something i had to chase all over the greatest greater madison area to track down it's extremely hard to find Hmm. i finally found what i found was passion fruit puree in the last few days um which if you defrost it and mix it with simple syrup makes a perfectly good uh syrup um and so i've been experimenting with juices or with uh drinks containing passion fruit syrup the last couple days uh so this is one of those it's it's quite good it's uh somewhat somewhat sour somewhat bitter but also a little bit sweet and rummy um and it's another good one for a time in which the weather is sort of warming up Mm -hmm. uh so that said uh let's launch into Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. death of dr island yes now as i mentioned the the uh title titling here might be confusing Um, Mm -hmm. So I want to Mm -hmm. run down all of this real quick. So the title story of this collection is The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories, um, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. makes the title of this collection The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. Uh, Now, Gene Wolfe published um, The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories in the late 70s or early 80s. I meant to look this up before we recorded, and I failed to, but sometime in that general time frame. Uh, And he... uh, It was nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Short Story, I believe. Um, And, you know, the the ballots were printed. It won. uh, It was on the program as being awarded the Best Hugo Award. And then, as I understand the history of this, at the last moment, it was... Uh, disqualified because it was like a hundred words over the, the limit to be considered a short story or something Uh. like that. So the uh, MC of the dinner, who was another science fiction writer whose name I also can't remember. And I should have looked up, but this MC said, it's okay. We all know that this award belongs to Gene and all he has to do next year is write the death of Dr. Island. And he will obviously, you know, get the award. Which he just said as like an off the cuff joke, but of course Gene Wolfe, being who he is, took this as a challenge, and did in the following year write and publish the story that we're about to talk about, called "The Death of Doctor Island," and won the Hugo Award for that story the next year. um That's fantastic, right? Is it not wonderful? uh mm-hmm. If if you have have uh, acquired the collection, gentle listener, you'll notice there's the island of dr death the death of dr island and then later in the collection there's the doctor of death island and Mm -hmm. not in this collection but i believe later wolf also wrote a story called the death of the island doctor uh and he published all four of these stories in a separate collection that if i recall correctly correctly was like a limited edition it was published like for charity like all the proceeds went to charity or whatever (laughs) Um, and he published these four island stories as the wolf archipelago which is a lovely that's fantastic right lovely little sort of uh linguistic joke there so uh that's right right right. that's all of the wonderful sort of backstory that you super don't need to know in order to enjoy this particular story but is sort of wonderful and fascinating and like all of the things I just said, if nothing else, I think clue you into Wolf's personality um, as much as anything yeah, yeah. ever would.
1: Right? He seems like he's just a funny guy in general. Like in, I, I think in just about everything I've read by him, there's a an undercurrent of some sort of kind of dark comedy. Yes,
0: that you know, if you if you weren't reading these stories with a certain amount of humor often like you say very dark in mind Mm -hmm. you would miss an entire wonderful layer of all of the stories right um there's a there's a quote now wolf of course was influenced very strongly by the great catholic writer gk chesterton and chesterton has a has a quote where he says something like that he he thinks there's something in the gospels, like in the biblical gospels that's evidently left out that it's there but it's only in the silences and that he thinks it's Mm -hmm. it is christ's humor um (laughs) and i i think that perhaps and this is pure theorizing on my part but i think that perhaps uh wolf read that chesterton quote and said well whether or not this is good biblical exegesis it's now my thing
1: that there's humor there often often it's on the
0: page but if it's not it's definitely there between the lines
1: right yeah no absolutely that's like you read this story for example the death of dr island and it's incredibly morbid it's incredibly sad it's incredibly pessimistic i think about the future and yet it's hilarious
0: (laughs) um I wanted to start this discussion off on a completely different note, but now I just need you to dive in and defend that statement, please. Okay.
1: (laughs) See, here's the thing. I don't know how much I can't, like, I enjoyed reading this story so much because there seems to be so much happening and, like, you're trying to delve into everything. So you're following this boy, Nicholas, Um, Nicholas Kenneth something, uh, what... Devor, yeah. which Devor, if that's Devor.
0: not a names with Michael bait, I don't know what is.
1: I, I know. Yes. Uh, um, anyway, I'm not going to go there. Um, because you don't need to, but like, okay. So you're following him around and he's crazy. He's admittedly crazy. And yet he's also maybe one of the most reliable sorts of narrators and yet also unreliable. And, well, and yes. it's, Okay. He's not actually a narrator either. Um, it's just, okay,
0: please like retain what you were about to say, please, because I want to know where you're going with it. Um, I do want to jump in here partly because, um, super fan Nat Ryan and I have been, uh, having, have been exchanging emails recently about the idea of narrator reliability and unreliability. Um, as pertaining Dang. to mm. the the homework special we did a little while ago, and smokers, and the faults or otherwise of Nat's professor in that context. But uh, it's interesting to me that Wolf is so interested in unreliable narrators. Um, yeah, A Borrowed Man obviously exemplifies that. Huge, uh, huge. Yeah, um, you know the Book of the New Sun, probably his most famous like science fiction work or series exemplifies that um most like fifth head of cerberus has three different narrators who are all unreliable in different ways um he's super interested in the unreliable narrator and yet in this one he chooses to have a third person narrator and yet there's a lot of unreliability in this text
1: yes like And that's, that's something that's interesting just in general. You talk about the idea of an unreliable narrator, and it almost seems like a third-person narrator should be excluded from that. A narrator who never sh- uses the first-person pronoun um, to refer to himself should be excluded from any sense of unreliability. And yet, maybe it's just being conditioned by Gene Wolfe, but I was kind of prepared for unreliability here. And it seems to be there, like, but it it's there in that this, this narrator is, a, it, it, in a lot of cases, uh, is third person limited as a narrator from Ni- uh, Nicholas's perspective and Nicholas being crazy, being brain damaged, um, does have weird perceptions like his perceptions fluctuate about things and the third person narrator just follows those fluctuations just kind of lets nicholas go where nicholas goes and we're just kind of dragged along like undertow i
0: want to be careful about the term crazy here because it's an extremely loaded term um both in general but especially within the context of the story uh sure part in part you could you could do an entire reading of the story and i'm thinking in terms of like a 400 level undergrad class or like a 500 level grad class um 10 10 to 15 page essay on this story you could do an entire one on this the 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 death of dr island interrogating the definition of crazy crazy um insanity versus sanity like you could do a whole mm. fifteen pages mm. on that easily. Yeah. So you know, but there's there's a there is a um, extremely valid point in what you say in that that narrative distance, uh, and this is actually something I wrote to Nat recently. When I was in grad school, I took one creative writing class. Most of my other classes were literature classes, right? Lit analysis and and related matters. Um, but for an elective, I took a creative writing class where the professor talked about the idea of narrative distance and narrative distance Mm -hmm. is different from you know perspective or related things in that narrative distance has to do with what the narrator of the story is reporting of the uh main character in the story so you could have a very a third person narrator that's very distant like a lot of hemingway's stories are this way where the narrator doesn't get down into the brain of the person who's the main character of the story right like hemingway Mm -hmm. a lot of his stories it tells you what the character did you know it's very it's almost like a newspaper reporter writing the story Mm -hmm. uh the opposite end of the spectrum, of course, I often go to, like, most of most of the narrative in Harry Potter, where it's very close in to this one specific character. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you don't, re- as a reader, and obviously in the later Harry Potter books, this changes a little, but for the most part, you don't know anything that this main third-person character does not know. Right? Um, mm. yeah. And in this story... It is probably the closest in narrative distance you can get without being a first-person narrator. And that can be... That can seem like your third-person narrator is being unreliable because they're stating things, but maybe those things are the impressions of the character. Mm -hmm. I'm... On, in my in my edition, which I think is different from yours, on page one hundred nine. So the, there's there's a whole passage, starting with when his when, in sort of a flashback, uh, Nick's mother gives him an egg, right? And it's this very beautiful mm. art object. Starting with where she says, "I mean, look inside, Nicky." Uh, and there's a description of the egg. His mother says, "Isn't it pretty?" Um and then night hung at the corners in funereal purple and sent long shadows like cold and lovely arms to caress the day and while he watched and it fell long-necked birds of so dark a pink that they were nearly red trailed stilt legs across the sky their wings making crosses they are called flamingos Dr. Island said following the direction of his mm-hmm. eyes so we started the scene in flashback and yep seamlessly without telling us the narrative transitioned from the flashback into the so-called like present tense of this story the the current action Mm -hmm. of the story where um we went from nick sitting on the beach uh sort of thinking back into his past to seeing something that dr island who can see him sitting on the beach can see him seeing right so we have that confusion of uh narrative distance to the point that this third person narrator who should not be unreliable manages to seem unreliable um and i would right right. i would entertain a debate about whether that's truly an unreliable third-person narrator versus a very close-in third-person narrator reporting the unreliability of the main character
1: but at that point i think it's ultimately kind of immaterial we've just got we're dealing with unreliability that's kind of the point yes (laughs) that that's where i would fall on that debate yeah for my two cents um i would
0: tend to agree i think
1: um but yeah no that's that's fascinating to 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 point that out and that that happens a lot throughout this where we're This is maybe the most intense occasion of it where he's flashing back to an occasion with his mother, but we have other flashbacks where he flashes back to, um, other institutions where he's being treated, uh, for, uh, his mental problems, um, and flashbacks to other um people who are in these programs with him maya being the primary one the character who recurs one who reoccurs in his flashbacks flashbacks. many yes yes she does absolutely and like um we we gather that she died and that she died in some gruesome way and it's kind of almost hinted that maybe nick is the one who killed her but that's also seemingly directly refuted by the text as well yeah Um, he definitely seems so like to feel responsible yeah,
0: yeah. for her death again right, with right. his unreliability and the narrator's unreliability it's easy to question whether that's objectively true or not.
1: Right. I mean like as as responsible as he may feel for Maya's death, he also at the end seems to feel responsible for Diane's death as well. Um but also blame Dr. Island too, which <sighs> The, the blame question isn't necessarily the central one of this story it's
0: and this actually goes back to how I originally wanted to start this episode and actually maybe how sure, I'll end sure. it sure um, it's the question that would be central in the reader's mind probably mm-hmm. in the sense that Gene Wolfe knows his audience in its own rhetorical context including its historical time that this would be the central question in the reader's mind but as we move through the story it is not the central question to any of the characters minds including nick including dr island and certainly including ignatius or um uh, diane uh, or Mm -hmm. any of the Mm -hmm. other characters um here's a here's a connection along these lines and this is something i wanted to get into the female characters in this story, the women in this... Yes. So, related to all of this, here's a set of connections. So, um, Michael, I don't know... I know you have, you have a later edition of this collection than I do. Mine starts on mm-hmm. 77 and goes to 131. Um,
1: Mine starts on 80 and goes to 130.
0: So, so. so
1: approximate
0: approximate not quite the same probably so okay on 89 uh one of the first introductions of maya in a flashback sequence right like this Mm. maya said and held her legs together and extended her arms to make a three-bladed bike prop or a crucifix um which Mm -hmm. as a maybe will be relevant but definitely as an aside the you the explicit use of the term crucifix in a text generated by a roman catholic author should always Ray. always be something you mark not necessarily yep. for any particular reason depending on the author but definitely should like be you should be alert to it uh still in Ray. that same in that same paragraph she had thrown herself into a spin as she made the movement and revolved slowly stage center red shorts white blouse red shorts white blouse red shorts no shoes okay uh Several mm-hmm. pages later, doc, uh, page 94 in mine, Dr. Island is uh, talking talking to Nicholas, and in the middle of a paragraph we get, Diane and the boy had turned away, and the waves hissing and slapping ceased to be speech. Gulls wheeled overhead, and once a red and yellow parrot fluttered from one palm to another. Uh, I th- mm. think the color repetition is interesting there
1: yes
0: so then we uh skip forward again uh 108 in my edition hopefully it's approximate in other editions nicholas says you talk like a woman are you a woman which is Uh one of most interesting like double entendre not double entendre in like the sexual sense but like these double meanings um you talk like a woman does that mean like some idea of, like, sentimentality versus, like, intellectualism that you'd, if if it was 1,500 years ago, we'd, you know, we'd think of these, like, Mm. intellectual standards. Or does he literally mean, like, your voice sounds like a woman? Right. There's no context to indicate either one or somewhere in between, and we don't have enough of this, like, future space culture to know, again, if he means one or the other.
1: Right. Well, it goes on and when, yeah, when he's, he says, when you're talking to Diane, you sounded more like a man, which again, doesn't answer the question of what do you mean by sounding like a woman sounding like a man? Is it the tone of voice? Is it the pitch, the timbre, or is it the words you say? Especially Um, in
0: a potentially like post-human culture where we may have extremely advanced body modifications. So people can like physically, mm. literally sound like anything they want what does it mean to right. sound like a woman or to sound like a man
1: right you know okay so there's there's a connection at are you have more thought to say i'm gonna hold on to this and let you finish your thought
0: and i do find it very interesting that he says dr island says how could i be a woman and nicholas says <laughs> you know what i mean um then he says yep. you're an Easter egg, which explicitly connects this to the previously mentioned
1: the flash the, flashback.
0: Yeah, bit with his mom giving him a literal egg, except it's not a literal yep, egg because yep. it's an art object of some kind, so that's also confusing. Man, I hate Gene Wolf.
1: Yeah, I know.
0: What do you mean by that, Nicholas? Never mind. He saw the egg as it had hung in the air before him, shining with gold and covered with flowers. So you have gold, which you have red, white, yellow and gold now in this sort of uh right um, right. set of connections and the egg all of which are alchemy things um
1: yeah i i wrote that in my margin as soon as the egg came up like oh alchemy right
0: yeah because for the the gentle listener who doesn't necessarily have any idea what we're saying um the philosopher's stone the ultimate goal of alchemy that could turn base metals to gold so there's your gold connection your yellow yellow connection yep yep um was sometimes called the philosopher's egg so egg and and stone and egg and philosopher's stone have the set of connections um also red white black and yellow were the sets of primary colors symbolic in the philosopher's stone
1: can I add a couple more things to that, too? Like, the colors, the color connection that I was making, if if you consider yellow to be kind of the same as gold, then red, white, and gold, or yellow, are the earliest liturgical colors in the Christian church.
0: Also, yep. while uh, we're uh, doing anthropology here, um, c- cultures yep, yep. and languages that only have two words for colors, black and white. Three words for colors, red, black, and white. I believe often the fourth word is a, is a yellow or a gold color.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, that's uh, not surprising to me. Um, further connection to like Christianity before you continue on here. Um, I don't know if you're going to touch on this with the alchemy sort of idea here, but some brands of alchemy, and the minimal research that I've done, and I know you've done a lot more than I have, uh, are very gnostic and so the the gnostic idea of the alchemical egg is hatching from that egg and therefore leaving the material into a more spiritual plane uh as and like what the image of what hatches from the alchemist's egg is a phoenix sort of figure with that resurrection idea as well um and I have more to say about that but I'm going to let you talk everything
0: you said is very valid whether the alchemical idea is a gnostic one or sort of the opposite of a gnostic one is literally something i could do an entire hour podcast all by myself me talking and no one else and I still not do feel I don't like doubt I'm it covered. at all <laughs> so i'm going to try to do this very briefly you could envision an and various alchemists have envisioned um a very gnostic philosopher's egg as a spiritual transcendence, where like the evil yep. body yep. is left behind, and only the spiritual essence is rendered, well, at the same time, other alchemists have also envisioned the philosopher's egg as the ultimate redemption of flesh, sure, sure. so it's a very fleshly mm-hmm. um thing, sort of a a a synec- not a synecdoche but like a a parallel with the idea of Christ as God entering into the flesh and purifying it so you as usual with alchemy you have both things in sort of a maddening way um, where you have both a very Gnostic like spiritualized version and you have a very fleshly like anti-Gnostic version almost Um, I want to not lose this passage because everything we've said is great Uh, as we continue so the island says you haven't yet said you think me beautiful um which is a very like flirty depending on sort of your definition and maybe maybe this is problematic but it seems like a very like female like flirty response oh are you gonna call me beautiful um Uh uh-huh which just we could talk about that line forever um nicholas then says you're an easter egg which, with all the baggage we've now brought into this, should be significant. What do you yep. mean by that, yep. Nicholas? Which is your, as Doctor Island, this like psychology, this this uh, psychiatrist. Um, you know, that's your classic psychologist response. Never mind. I've, I think I read this bit before. Uh, yep. Doctor yep. Island says eggs are dyed with pretty colors for Easter, and my colors are beautiful. Is that what you mean, Nicholas? Again, asking him to call Dr. Island Beautiful. Yep. His mother had brought the egg on visiting day, but she could never have made it. Nicholas knew who must have made it. The gold was that very pure gold used for shielding delicate instruments. The clear flakes of crystallized carbon that dotted the egg's surface with tiny scars could only have come from a laboratory high-pressure furnace. And... Uh, there's there's several various like places we could go with this but as long as we're tracing this alchemy symbolism the idea of very pure gold is exactly what the philosopher's stone is meant to produce like not any corrupt earthly gold but a very pure you know gold um laboratory high pressure furnace if you trace the lineage of um chemical mechanisms chemical uh from mm-hmm. when alchemists developed them which they did develop several of like the the apparatus that are still in use today through our time where alchemy is sort of this occult thing that actual chemists would never have anything to do with through into the future where we're the the world built here sort of assumes a future descended from earth as it is now right so like there's this alchemical like heritage you know pushing all the way through here right right mm-hmm. so uh then we have the passage that i did read earlier that's about a page later in mine 109 the flamingos making crosses
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i want to say there was maybe one other element here but i can't remember it and then of course i don't know i think i think you could trace this uh set of connections um even more so so my sure. page 114 at the bottom nicholas wondered why it was always men most often doctors and clinical psychologists in his experience who wanted to tell you stories jesus he recalled was always telling everyone stories and the virgin mary almost never Though a woman he had once known who thought she was the Virgin Mary had always been talking about her son. He thought mm-hmm. Ignatio looked a little like Jesus. Possibly the most deeply troubling sentence in this entire story.
1: Um. Yep.
0: Though the fact that, you know, I am uh, one of my own religious and intellectual heritage and I did say the word possibly before that statement <laughs> tells you perhaps everything else you need to know about this story.
1: You also said, perhaps just now, um, but yes, so this kind of ties in with with a, a set of connections i wanted I wanted to make earlier, just that Nicholas's relationship with women is interesting, and I am mad about the fact that that's one of the most interesting features here because it seems so Freudianly reductive. As far as this whole setting being therapy, like, this whole island is the couch where he is lying and talking to Dr. Island about his problems, and so Dr. Island is saying maybe this is relating to your relationship with your mother, essentially. Um, But it is, like, it, it all is. You see this relationship to women, and the women are so intimately connected with these aspects of religion and uh like the with the cross and the crucifix you know Maya being connected to the cross this flashback to his mother being connected to the flamingos looking like crosses and then all together as well you see them all connected to birds i can't find the passage exactly but when Diane tells there's tells him there's a bird living inside me and also i'm not me i'm the bird um so again like making her body the egg for the bird to hatch out of when it's done feeding on the insides of her um but um, but, okay, so, um, there's a connection here too. Did you know he gave away the ending to the story in the middle?
0: Well, I first want to just mention that I had noted the bird symbolism and I had noted the egg symbolism and I somehow failed to, like, connect those two. Um, but oh. you're oh, right, sure. <laughs> like, that is freaking essential.
1: Right, like, what comes out of eggs? Birds!
0: Um, I, I want to know what you mean by this. I would like to say that he gave away the ending when he associated Maya and the crucifix, which is, like, less than a quarter of the way through the story, but...
1: Okay, yes, there he absolutely did, but it's um, maybe hidden in a more snooty sort of snobbish way. Uh, My page 109, right where you were talking about where he says you're an Easter egg, that whole page and everything, but before the flamingos... He's describing, um, or his mother in the flashback is describing the egg and describing the flowers. The flowers are Meadowsweet, Fraxinella, Lily of the Valley, and Moss Rose. Oh. Oh. Lily of the Valley, by the way, is my name. Um, Lilienthal. But, uh, the meaning of these flowers, Meadowsweet symbolizes uselessness. Fraxinella symbolizes fire. Lily of the Valley symbolizes eternal life and a return of happiness. And Moss Rose symbolizes a confession of love in a very generic sort of way. And then Asphodel comes on the uh, other way. He saw then that there was a lens at one end disguised as a dew drop in the throat of an Asphodel. And an Asphodel symbolizes remembrance beyond the grave.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: So, okay, starting with Meadow... It's telling the story in the order you meet the flowers also. Because Meadow Sweet uselessness, we hear from Dr. Island that... Uh, Diane's case is essentially useless. It's not going to be won. So what happens to her? She dies through fire. But through that, there's an eternal sort of life that comes to her and a return of happiness to Ignatio through her death uh, and the confession of love that Nicholas then kind of has his own sort of breakthrough or breakdown at that point, realizing that he cares for her this much, uh, and that causes him... Or you could debate that, you know, Dr. Island takes credit for putting his right brain in, or his left brain into a catatonic state uh, at that point. But then Asphodel Fidel that she is remembered beyond the grave at that point as well. Um, yeah, so the flowers tell the story of the and end. Then,
0: yeah, exactly. And this all ties into the fact and like the, the cross crucifix, even red and gold symbolism associated with and then the the birds associated with the women who, again, birds, um, especially pelicans, are a classical Christ symbol. All of this associated with sacrifice throughout the story sets us up for the idea that Diane, as Dr. Island, literally tells uh, Nicholas that she sacrifices herself so that, um, especially Ignatio, but also perhaps Nicholas, that they both can live
1: can yeah can grow can, can move on, yeah can be live. healed in um, a sense um, okay
0: uh so we have that and well
1: like nicholas himself as a result of this is rechristened he gets a new name like which is his middle name but still like he comes to be known as someone else because part of him is dead and buried catatonic and the other part of him is given new life um And the part of him that is dead and buried is the part that did say, I want to be a bomb. I want to just blow everything else. I'm self and all destructive. Um, And that part is buried. The part that is made alive is the calmer part.
0: (laughs) All wonderfully, like in a way that I could not have probably planned for if I'd wanted to, leads into the question that I wanted to start this discussion with. And I'm actually really <laughs> proud that we're getting to here at the end, because I think it does tie everything we've said together in a certain way. With the acknowledgement here and probably some other places that, like, we could spend an entire Mondo Book arc, four episodes, discussing this story, if we wanted Probably, Probably. Like, I could do it. Um
1: yeah. So, you know, <laughs> even if you, you didn't want to play
0: me. yeah i mean i do because your ideas like blow my mind but um if i had to do it by myself i could do it anyway so here's the question that i thought of well like reading and prepping for this episode that i thought might be the first question i asked what is the genre of this short story
1: What is the genre? Oh, interesting. Okay.
0: Now I want to I'm going to give you a second to think and preface this by saying I usually hate this question. Right? Especially in a novel because you get if you're ever on like science fiction or fantasy forums or like other online discussion groups, you get so down into the weeds of like is this grim dark steampunk uh, science fantasy or is it yeah hard science fiction, but can, you know, like you these discussions like they're endless and they're frankly boring um yeah. usually, and like they usually just don't in my my major actual problem, like you know have have all of the nerd discussions that you want like I'm usually on board for them, they usually don't yield any kind of insight, but sure w- there's a specific reason that I don't want to give away beforehand to say to ask what genre if you had to pick what genre would you say the short story was
1: okay um now that you've given me time to think my answer is probably still the same as it was at the beginning i think it's science fiction like and part of the reason i'm coming down on that is just it's just science fiction is i i don't think it's a genre that needs to be limited to you're on a spaceship out fighting aliens or encountering aliens no it takes place in a science fiction setting the science fiction element is more or less essential for this story to take place in the way it does uh for them to be you know orbiting jupiter as i think they are um or at least is what they say they are uh in this satellite that looks like an eye but also maybe an egg um
0: wow oh my gosh Man, this is why I do need you for this show.
1: <laughs> and um, the the idea that a therapist can enter your mind, uh, as Dr. Island does in several different ways. You know, it's science fiction. So I, that's, that's what I'm going to say, and I am perfectly ready to defend it or to retract it based on what you have to say.
0: Well, and again, another <laughs> preface I want to go with another reason i hate these debates is that like everyone has to come down on like an either or like either this yeah, is yeah. this genre or it's this genre um and i i uh, in saying that what i want to say is i respect that assertion or argument whatever and i don't think mine is despite what nat wants i don't think mine is like an a argument against that or saying that that is inherently wrong um. Mm-hmm. And also I'm going to admit I've read the story twice. I read the story to prep for this show. Okay. Um I read it another time several years ago like maybe in college okay. so 9 or 10 years ago something like that. Um so I, for this prepping for this show I came to it knowing what the ending was. I didn't remember because it was okay. long enough ago I didn't remember most of the rest of it i remember being disturbed by it at the time wanting to go back and reread it and mm. never doing so until until now so that said i think this is a horror story okay um and i think that because of some so we've traced several specific through lines including very symbolic ones that i love and adore but there are some other through lines we could trace through the story specifically to do with ignacio and how many times it is said that he is important and being mm-hmm. that i think the setting of this story is uh some years after humanity has moved off of earth but not too many years after like not so far in the future that earth is like a legend or forgotten altogether Sure. Um, sure. i think that gene wolf is tracing some very specific aspects of global capitalism here um, okay. specifically to do and again uh this is this is outlined quite specifically when Diane asks Kenneth or wait Nicholas um I don't know why I said Kenneth anyway you have to edit that part out uh she asks <laughs> why are we here? Why was this place bit? built and the implication that's almost stated some of its subtext some of its plain text the implication is like this is a real expensive place the therapy here and everything about it is real expensive why did they put us to like stupid poor people on this place um and again the implication being Ignacio is important like there's one of one out of the three of us is important enough to warrant the expense here and it's him um and then also mm-hmm. dr island does say that that when humanity has moved out of the farther away they've moved from from earth uh the more like fragile psychology becomes and the more they need to preserve at almost any cost anyone who can sort of survive like like look into the void and uh not have the void destroy them
1: right right
0: so the implication Mm -hmm. here is that ignatio is important at least for one or possibly at least two reasons because his family is rich and because uh he can survive that like void of space which, if you think about the passages about him, you know, being able to survive in this desolate place in the Amazon with no one else, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's almost like a model for surviving in the vast use of space without anyone else. Um, so the implication to me, again, I have to admit that this is on a second reading, that I might not have gotten from a first reading. But the implication to me is that Diane is a an explicit, calculated sacrifice because they knew what Ignacio's problem was and that it was the sort of like fear or uh, fear or revulsion of women that he needed to get over that. Yep. That Dr. Island was built to create the situation where diane would sacrifice herself and that that would solve sort of solve ignatio's problem i want to say two things about that first okay one is that uh there's a science fiction writer named john c Wright who is not the least disagreeable of writers um at this point but in some ways he's very smart and i read a blog post from him once that said where he outlined his theory that Gene Wolf creates worlds that are morally repugnant not to anyone in them but to the the reader. Hmm. That part of his his what he's interested in as a writer is showing us worlds where the people in them think that everything is fine, but the reader can see that this is horrifying. Yeah so that's that's like one one okay. other leg on yeah. which this theory rests and i can definitely see that in other works sure, of gene sure. wolf even in a borrowed man you could say i i think i may have brought this theory up yeah. in our borrowed man episodes
1: it it sounds familiar but i don't know if it's familiar because you brought it up or because it just makes so much sense but um uh yeah no and it does apply to a borrowed man too um I want to point out just the fact that you brought up about Ignacio that, like, the problem that eventually was solved for him is that he was frightened by women, which Dr. Island explicitly says. And I don't know if we have a hint of that ever before this point. Like, we see him interacting differently with Nicholas and Diane, but I don't know if we ever hear that it's explicitly because he has a fear of women i don't know if i necessarily want to call that into into doubt uh either but um i think it's it's uh... possible
0: that dr island is wrong and that that's in this text and there are certainly things in the history of psychology and medicine more broadly where you are wrong about what problem you're addressing but the method you use to address it is like still effective And I would not be surprised or argue with the idea that that's what part of what's going on here.
1: Right. And ultimately it does seem extremely believable. Like you say that this is shortly after humanity leaves earth for whatever reason and is, is venturing out into the outer limits of space and they need humanity to be able to survive at large. And so for the greater need of humanity, they are willing to sacrifice those who are, useless those who are the meadow suite like diane um for those purposes it it seems perfectly feasible
0: and again part of the horror being uh who is useless and who gets to decide who is useless and yeah on what basis is that determined um it actually reminds me of another chesterton quote that i love um where chesterton said the correct way to address anyone who talks about the surplus population is to ask them whether they are the surplus population and if they are not how they know they are not and i think mm-hmm. that you know might be part of the horror here is that certain people have gotten to yeah, the yeah. point where they get to decide wh- who is and whether they are um and how they yeah. get to decide that
1: well and the illusion of power is kind of part of it too this the, the idea i mean ignacio thought he was more or less in control he thought he had defeated this robot um and stolen its fire when in fact that was designed or at least permitted um for his further development because then we see the robot later coming and taking this nuclear incinerator uh thing nuclear welder from nicholas uh later it comes up and it's fine um and further like the idea they they strip these people down naked and send them into this desert island situation which seems like powerlessness but it's it's the sort of thing where they're being trained to take power for themselves and ignatio really excels at that eventually and it culminates in his killing of diane nicholas learns from Ignacio to an extent doesn't quite get the full aspect uh but kind of sees behind the curtain sees behind the illusion sees that it is an illusion um and so his development is different seeing that this idea of power is itself false and in that connection too I want to talk just briefly just real briefly about words because okay, um, uh, this really starts at the very beginning of the story where we get this picture of this grain of sand teetering on the brink of the pit, trembled and fell in, and then there's an antlion. This picture of an antlion, and then the antlion is replaced by the boy who is revealed to be Nicholas. He it's explicitly described that he he is where the antlion was. He takes the place of the lion. So okay. Think in terms of gods and men, in the way that the most common depiction of how the gods view men is the gods view men as men view ants. Okay, so ants, right? That's that's a really common picture. But here Nicholas is as an ant lion, so something that is destructive among ants. Okay, uh, but still much less than a man, right? Um, so he's thrown into this situation. He's more wild than the rest of the wilderness around him. But then um, the surf starts talking to him, and the first words that the surf say to Nicholas are, hear me, and it repeats hear me three times, and then Nicholas hears him. So the words have effected what they say. Hear me, you hear it, okay? The words are effective in that way. Which um, is interesting
0: um, in the... because another of like these wolf uh, ambiguities is that for a while, if you're reading this for the first time, you wouldn't know whether the surf or some of these other natural elements are actually saying these things, or whether it's some sort of metaphor that that Nicholas himself is sort of imposing yes. in this wilderness. Which, of course, or whether
1: it's some sort of psychosis that he's suffering from, or something. Yeah,
0: which of course becomes like part of the central, like <clears throat> symbolic. Uh, ground of the story is the idea that this setting has been created because people want yep. to read into nature what they are already feeling
1: yes mm-hmm. and then the idea that their feelings are suddenly controlling nature here in this setting uh is is fascinating continuing with this words theme though page 110 in my edition right in the middle um nicholas said it's right after the the, the, uh, the flying pelicans making crosses. Um, or flamingos, sorry. Um, Nicholas said, words just mix you up. So he's denying words altogether. Then, the very end, page 130 in my book, um, uh, Nicholas pressed his scarred head against his knees, rocking back and forth. Then, Dr. Island speaking, don't move. For a long time, he sat still. Once again, Dr. Island's words effecting what they say. Uh, and then after that, we see that Nicholas is gone. Kenneth comes in uh, with this, this personality difference that uh, Dr. Island effects this change in Nicholas. So the idea of the words of Dr. Island having this power coming into the mind of the individual and causing these changes. Um, and that, that I think is, I, I think Gene Wolfe is very conscious of the idea of what a narrative does that these are words words have power words are causing you to picture these things he knows what his words are doing as we're reading them yeah yeah
0: yeah that's really yeah and again you could just write an entire 15 page essay about like that what you just said like that could be your thesis statement um yeah yeah the relation between the narrator of the story and the reader of the story as sort of placed upon Nicholas and Dr. Island, um, or Mm -hmm, potentially mm -hmm. several other aspects of the story. Uh, the other thing I, one, one other, uh, thing I wanted to mention from the idea of reading the story as a horror story, uh, Mm -hmm. is just the idea that, um. Oh. So yeah. you had mentioned maybe you didn't mean this, but it certainly was the implication that in the end, Doctor Island putting Nicholas Devore into this catatonic state and bringing out the other personality was a healing thing. Yeah. You could all like. I think it's legitimate to read it that way. Um. De- yeah, again, depending yeah. on your definition of of healing and and some of the other terms yeah, exactly. involved but if the horror reading is correct it really reads and this is the way i read it this particular time it really reads as dr island using his power to suppress an alternative narrative and create yeah, this person yeah. who's okay with the way that the social structures have sort of uh needed to play out
1: right yeah no and it it does ultimately seem like nicholas doesn't really hit a breakthrough he hits trauma and then it's shut down and that's yeah I, i can see where that and and that's too where like my definition of science fiction your definition of horror i don't think they're mutually exclusive i think it could be a horror science fiction book not uh story
0: yeah I think there's absolutely room for both. Partly because my definition of science fiction is very uh, contingent on some of the writers from this era, like the early 80s and even a decade or two beforehand, where often science fiction was viewed as an optimistic genre. Like, a science fiction story inherently had a sunny view of what... Uh, technology would do that it would solve more problems than it would create not that you know even even your classic like your iRobot or whatever not that they didn't address problems because that's how you create drama in fiction but the outlook was much more that again the the problems would be lesser than the the things that they solved and or that you would be able to solve the problems and they would again the 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 solution would be less than the pain of solving it mm-hmm. and so again this is back to whose whose very pedantic definition of genre you want to use <laughs> yep. by that definition uh, this this would not be a pure science fiction story it would have horror yeah. in it even though most certainly I'm the the statement I'm a hundred thousand percent comfortable with is that the science in this story is like as good as Gene Wolfe could make it in the year 1980 like he definitely knew yeah. what he was talking about as far as the speculative science went
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: cool uh as far as we've come is that uh Is there anything else you really need to say?
1: No, I think that's, you know, a good spot to to quit here. I I will say just that I do want to read it again, and I was kind of hoping I'd be able to read it before we recorded, uh, read it a second time, but I didn't get around to it. But I'm just encouraged to read it again.
0: And again, this is, you know, Gene Wolfe. Like, he wrote explicitly he said this on the record he wrote to be reread. yeah he was he was he's a he was a writer I, it just hurts to use the past tense but here we are he was a writer yep. who didn't write stories that everything could be gleaned from the first time right he wrote intentionally to to uh encourage and inspire multiple readings and readings at different levels and in different through different lenses and so on and so forth
1: Mm -hmm. yep yeah
0: yeah well uh do we do we need to do any ratings
1: i don't think so i mean buy it i'm just you know it's gene wolf buy it (laughs) right like snap it up
0: (laughs) gonna be an unprejudiced uh view from the seeds here but yeah buy buy it again i i said something similar at the top of the episode but if you don't ever like if you want to be convinced to buy gene Wolfe's other collections of short fiction get this one or if you don't ever want to read if you only want to read one get this one um just there's so many of his good like his best short stories in this collection uh there was a more recently published edition that was just called i think the best of gene wolf and i was looking through the contents of it and like mm. feel felt like to me fully half of the contents of that were just from this specific volume mm. so yeah uh buy it buy it buy it i'm sure our drinks were good uh yep yep yeah very good all right uh well, thank you for listening to this Gene Wolf special. Um I hope it was good, but it was better than the version where I just broke down weeping because Gene Wolf is dead at the age of eighty nine. Um <laughs> Michael did have to not edit that but just fully delete it and start us over. So
1: Yep, it's true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It took up an entire hour before this, and I was like, it was, we, can't, we can't keep this. I mean, it was hour. like an
0: hour of the show, and then two more hours of me weeping, and then we did, what you've just heard. Yeah, it was bad. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. We have Intermission, the audio drama podcast.
1: Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. Thank you.
0: I just didn't want to give you any room to convict me
1: very very diplomatic of you thank
0: you uh really sort of selfish but call it i, I like diplomatic better okay check out my webcomic pinporter girl detective uh fairy tale film noir uh webcomic that's at pinporter uh michael where can they find you online
1: I am on Twitter at m g l i l i e n t h a l. I am also in um, Pokemon Rollout uh, regularly, so check that one out. And yeah, that's where I am. And in the Tapestry Radio Tap Root House on Facebook, that group, I'm there.
0: I am at Bjartlet on Twitter, b j a r t l e t t. I don't check it very often, but if you tweet at me, I will probably see it. But <laughs> why would you tweet at me? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Because they're mad at you. Yeah, that's that's definitely why. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, check us out next time. What book are we reading as of this current continuity, Michael? As of, as this, of release- this
1: release, the next episode to come out will be our discussion of Jacques the Fatalist by Denis Diderot. All
0: right. So read that Stupid philosophical French nonsense that I love. And (laughs) until next time, just remember it is our party, and we will cry if we want to.